Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus and study uh, what can be a pretty confusing doctrine, but we'll be spending several weeks on it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have your word to go to to explain to us the nature of our spiritual life, the nature of our relationship with you, and to come to a greater understanding of the magnificent salvation that you have provided for us and all that was necessary to bring us from a position of being spiritually dead and under condemnation to spiritual life, justification, and the possession of perfect righteousness. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study uh, this evening that you'll help us to understand these things and to focus and concentrate and lay aside the uh, concerns about tomorrow and worries about today so that we can uh, be refreshed by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are continuing our study in Hebrews chapter 7. However, we've had to take some digressions. And the reason is because... Uh, the last two verses of Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, 9, and 10, are verses that are used in two really tough theological uh, debates or issues having to do with the origin of the soul, the transmission of the soul, and the transmission of the sin nature. And what's important is that these ideas are fundamental to understanding the whole concept of justification. But not just justification, the preceding concept of condemnation and the transmission of Adam's original sin onto the human race. So the question we addressed earlier in the first part of this digression had to do with how is each human being's soul created after the original creation? And how is it passed on? How does it go from one generation to the other? And we concluded that the soul is created individually by God and given to each individual at the time of birth. The next question is, if that soul comes from God, then it's created perfect, because when God creates, he always creates perfect, perfection. And if he creates the soul perfect, then how does it become corrupt and under condemnation, and how does it receive the guilt of Adam's original sin? 
And so that question is answered in uh, this next study. Am I going to be fighting this all night? Wait a minute. Let me see what's... I don't see anything causing that. I hope I'm not fighting that all night. Okay, it's been one of those days, everybody. So, this is related to the origin of the soul. In the origin of the soul, we saw there were two ways in which theologians have come to understand how the soul originates and is passed on. The first way is called traducianism, which means that the soul is passed on physically through the act of procreation. The other way is creationism, that God immediately creates and imparts each individual soul. Now, there are different views as to when that's imparted. Some would have it at conception. Others have it, as I taught, at the time of birth. Now, related to that is the issue of the transmission of original sin. So you again have two views. One view is called seminalism. And as you can tell from the name seminal or seed, that would be the one that would be closely related to traditionism because it has to do with a more physical uh, passing on not only of the soul but also of human sin and the guilt of sin. The other view is known as federalism. And federalism has to do with the fact that Adam is the federal head of the human race, the representative of the human race, and because he was there in our place, in our stead, as our representative, he is, uh, his guilt becomes our guilt. Now, both of these are important to understand the transmission of, of the sin nature, but they also become very important in understanding the dynamics of Christ's work on the cross, because you always run into these verses like, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, In Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. So these concepts of in Adam and in Christ are fundamentally based in how we understand these, these other uh, doctrines that are, in fact, I, I've looked through some systematic theologies and they're not even discussed. I've looked at others where they are discussed, but that's, uh, people say, oh, this is so abstract, it's so... Uh, difficult to understand. Let's just get to the important practical stuff of how you get saved. Well, we're trying to understand how we get saved, understand that, that God's plan of salvation is not just some simple waving of the magic wand, but that's just as we've seen in our studies on Sunday morning and other times, that the uh, effect of sin is so devastating and so widespread and so universal that the solution to sin has to also be very complex and widespread and universal, and it has to deal with all these things. So we're just breaking it down in uh, very fundamental categories. We didn't get very far last time. We just introduced uh, the issue talking about Adam's original sin. This is the starting point, that Adam's sin being the first act of willful disobedience to God by a human being in the Garden of Eden, committed by Adam, it could not have been committed by uh, Eve because he's the designated head. He's the head of the family. He's the head of the marriage. He is the head of the human race in the Garden. So it was his decision that was foundational and fundamental, not her decision, even though hers is the first sin. When we look in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 12, that talk about why women 
are not to have authority or to teach men the scriptures. It ultimately goes back to the, or, the what happens in the garden and that Eve was deceived. That is the reason. Paul doesn't come from a uh, uh, some sort of Greek reason. He doesn't come from a cultural reason. He doesn't argue from uh, the culture of, of Rome or even the uh, uh, Judaistic culture of the Pharisees. He argues from the order of creation and what happens at the fall. It just isn't coincidental. So we looked at Adam's original sin. How is this passed on, transmitted to every one of us? How did we receive the guilt of Adam's sin? Some people say, well, uh, and they have said this many times in history, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem fair that God would send us to hell because Adam messed up. Now, that, there's a word there I just used, and we have to be very careful with this word now. That's the word fair. What does fair mean? I don't can't tell you how many times in church and over the years I've heard Christians talk about, well, God is fair, and in a certain frame of reference, using the term fair to describe God's justice had legitimacy, but it doesn't have legitimacy in a postmodern, non-absolute culture anymore. Because fair is now defined as people having everything in equality. It is a very communistic idea of fairness, that it's not fair that one person works hard and makes uh, millions of dollars and another person also works hard, but they aren't very well educated and aren't very well trained and they only make forty or $50,000. That just doesn't seem fair. And as soon as you use that word fair, what you've done is you have imported a concept of of value and absolute standards. And so when people say often say, well, that doesn't seem fair, what they're really saying is I've got a concept of how God ought to operate. God doesn't, what you just explained, doesn't fit my concept of egalitarian fairness. And so because uh, your concept of God doesn't fit my concept of egalitarian fairness and, and a socialistic equality of assets and everything, then your God is a horrible, evil God. So it's better to always use biblical terminology and talk about the justice of God and the righteousness of God to avoid getting sucked in inadvertently to somebody's postmodern concept of fairness and equality. Adam's original sin is our sin because Adam as our representative, and that's a federalistic idea, is he's designated our head, he's designated our representative so that his decision is our decision. But he can be our representative because physically he is also related to us. And the way I'm going to teach this and explain this is to show that both of these concepts are true. Unfortunately, in in theology, too often people end up saying, well, it's either this or it's that. I'm going to list all of my passages to substantiate my position of federal headship. And then the guy on the other side comes along and says, okay, I have my passages to support seminalism. Well, they're both true because man is composed of two aspects. He has a material and an immaterial aspect. He has a physical body, and in that physical body, there is a 
transmission of the corruption of sin that entered into the flesh. That's why we have these very physical terms used to describe the sin nature, the body of sin in Romans 6, the flesh throughout the, uh, throughout the New Testament. These are physical terms. So there is a corruption that occurs that is in the flesh. So there is a physical transmission of something, but there is also a spiritual or a non-material imputation of something are crediting. And we need to take some time and talk about imputation. So to even go into the subject of Adam's original sin, you start to open a can of worms because you can't just stop and briefly explain it. You have to make sure people understand what Adam's original sin was, how it's transmitted, how it affects the human race, how it how it's imputed. Now you're into the doctrine of imputation. You can't talk about imputation without talking about Romans 5, 12 to 21, Romans 5, 12 to 21 is a uh, real mare's nest of problems, theologically and exegetically, so we have to work our way through that. And so somewhere when we come out the other end in July or early August, we'll have a better understanding of this whole doctrine of justification by faith because that's based on imputation, and that was the foundation of the Reformation, and that makes what makes Protestants historically Protestants. Historically, not in terms of contemporary culture, because contemporary culture is a mess. And it's, most denominations have fallen into 19th century subjective liberalism. So we started with Adam's original sin. And I went through a few points last time. I want to uh, summarize this or move through this in 16 points. We got, we didn't get very far last time. So we'll just start with point number one. Adam's original sin occurred when he violated God's mandate in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2.17, he was told, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof, you will certainly die. And that Hebrew there isn't dying, you will die. That doesn't even make sense. If you think about it in English, it doesn't make sense in in Hebrew. You have a, a cow imperfect in conjunction with a cow infinitive absolute. And it's a Hebrew idiom meaning that something is certain. It's bold-faced italics underlined in uh, uppercase. It is a statement of absolute uh, certainty that something is going to immediately happen. So point two, this, this sin of disobedience resulted in Adam's immediate spiritual death, not something that happens 930 years later, but something that happened immediately. If you eat from uh, the, if you eat from spoiled uh, um, shrimp, you will get immediately sick, right? You're not going to wait 20 years and then get sick from that shrimp. Okay, that wouldn't make sense. But people often make the mistake of saying that the penalty for sin is physical death. Physical death is a consequence of spiritual death. It's a consequence of that act of spiritual rebellion. So the sin resulted in Adam's immediate spiritual death and the formation of a sin nature. Now, when you go through seminary, and Ike's going to find this out if he hadn't discovered it already, and you get into theology classes, everybody gets all wrapped around the axle over what does nature mean. Well, is this something... uh, uh, you can put under a microscope and observe. What, what does nature mean? And, and you go through all kinds of discussions. It basically means a capacity, a, a capacity 
for disobedience and autonomy from God, and it is something that is inherited genetically. There is certainly a corporal dimension to it, to this sin nature, the capacity for disobedience and rebellion against God. So, point number three, the sin nature is a corruption of the image of God. Now, let me just stop there. That's just the first clause in this point. This third point, the sin nature is a corruption of the image of God. Now, if we go back to Genesis 1, 26 to 27, and we've spent a lot of time in those verses, so I don't think we need to spend a lot of time there, where God says, I'm going to create man, for let, let us create man in our image and in our likeness. And too often in evangelicalism and in Christianity, image and likeness has been restricted to simply the soul, simply the immaterial part of man. And as I've pointed out time and time again, we can't do that. You can't limit it to only the immaterial part of man. He's talking about let us make the human race in our image and after our likeness. It is a term that involves not only the incorporeal part of man, the, the immaterial part of man, but also the corporeal part of man. It is the totality of man that represents this imageness, and the body is just as much important as the immaterial soul. And so there is a physical dimension to being in the image of God. Not that man, God looks like man, but that man is to be the representative. In that case, case he represents God as his image. So if the sin nature corrupts the image of God, if the image of God is only immaterial, then the corruption is only immaterial. But if the image is both material and immaterial, then the image is corrupted and there's a physical and an, an immaterial dimension to that corruption. And that's the point I'm making. If, it's not that, that that means that all of a sudden man looked worse, but he definitely, that physical aspect certainly began to impact things so that uh, man lost health, he physically died, he had, was subject to illness, he eventually becomes subject to all kinds of physical diseases because of the physical corruption of the, of the image of God. So the third point is that the sin nature is a corruption of the image of God which distorts the individual's orientation to God. That's in the spiritual realm, in that non-material realm, because in spiritual death, the human spirit is lost. The human spirit is that immaterial aspect of man's makeup that enables his soul to have to be properly oriented to God, to understand the things of God, to communicate with God, and to have relationship with God. And when that dimension, whatever you want to call it, we call it a human spirit, is gone, then the human soul in its self-consciousness, in its mentality, in its volition, in its consciousness, tries to orient itself to what? A material universe. Because it has no anchor, no knowledge, no connection to true the true spiritual dimension, which is God. Jesus says in John 4, those who worship must worship God in spirit and truth because God is a spirit. And so 
in, in spiritual death, man has no capacity to orient toward God. So his thinking is automatically oriented and attracted to a material, physical universe. There is an affinity there. And as a result, he can't understand the things of the Spirit of God and many other, many other factors. So, point number three, the sin nature is a corruption of the image of God which distorts the individual's orientation to God and supplies a capacity and orientation to rebellion toward God. It's not simply, in Roman Catholic theology, they use the term privation, privation, which means you lose something. Something is, is no longer there. And so they view sin as simply the loss of righteousness or holiness. That's an anemic view of the sin, of what happens in the fall. It's, it's, it's just the loss of, of original righteousness. It's not the acquisition of a nature that is corrupt and corrupting. So there, there's not a tangible gaining of that which is evil. And that's what the scripture teaches. We become corrupt. We don't just lose something. We also acquire this orientation to God that is uh, hostile. Fourth point. At the core of this sinful capacity, we have two aspects. And I think whatever we do with, when we talk about the sin nature, there's two uh, two poles around which all the activities of the sin nature uh, orient themselves. The first is the autonomy of man. I'll use a little alliteration here so we can remember this. Autonomy and arrogance, or autonomy and antagonism. In autonomy, man is arrogant toward God. He is filled with himself. Autonomy means self-law. Autos, namas, self-law. Man is going to be a law unto himself. He's going to look to himself for absolutes. For the, He's going to determine what's right and wrong. That's what Eve started to do when the serpent said, did God really say this? Is that really true? Well, now he has put her in a position where she has to judge the veracity of God. And as soon as she began to judge whether or not God's command was fair or not, then she was already flying down that slippery slope into failure. So the first aspect of the sin nature is autonomy or independence, rebelliousness. Man is going to rule things on his own apart from God. And the second is antagonism towards God. He wants to put himself first, and he is also hostile to God. He is hostile to divine revelation. He's hostile to divine truth. Man's basic orientation is to be hostile to the divine institutions and establishment truth. Fifth point, the sin nature renders the individual separated from God and depraved or corrupted in all aspects of his nature. That's what the reformers meant when they used the phrase total depravity. They didn't mean that you were as bad as you could be. They meant that every aspect of your being was affected and corrupted by sin. Your consciousness, your mentality, your volition... Your thought, everything is corrupted and affected by sin. There's no element of man's makeup that is just uh, free-floating like it was before Adam sinned. 
So the sin nature renders the individual separated from God and depraved and corrupted in all aspects of his nature. Therefore, man is unable to do anything that pleases God or gains God's approval. Now, man can do relative good things. Jesus said to his disciples, you being evil, clear recognition of their depravity. Modern man doesn't like to think that we're evil, that those cute little babies that are born are evil. They're, they're just as evil. All it is is a sin nature wrapped up in the flesh. And you know what the Bible says about the flesh. So the, that little baby is just as evil as he can be. Just as evil as anybody else. Just as, that little baby is just as evil as Adolf Hitler. He just hasn't acted on it yet. But that's his capacity. So man can't do anything to please God, but Jesus said to his disciples, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. See, he's capable of relative good. He's capable of all sorts of altruism. He's capable of all kinds of helpfulness. He's capable of all manner of kindnesses. Man can do many wonderful, wonderful things as a fallen creature apart from the enablement of God. But it is all tainted by a root that is corrupted by, corrupted by sin. So man can't do anything to merit God's approval. He's incapable of knowing God or responding in any way that includes something meritorious. So that leads to the sixth point. That means that the sin nature or this capacity, this corrupted aspect can produce both sin in terms of active disobedience to God, active disobedience to revealed mandates. That would be a definition of personal sin, direct disobedience of God and his character. And sin can also produce that which is relative good. It can produce morality. Not long ago I was talking with a... a uh, uh, a man, a minister in a denomination, and I made the point that that unbelievers can be incredibly moral, but that doesn't mean that they're good in God's eyes. You really didn't quite know what to do with that. Because what's typical today is morality is often used as a synonym for spirituality. But Jesus recognizes that unbelievers can be moral. The Pharisees were very moral. We come at the text looking at it through the grid of the Holy Spirit's interpretation, and we see the, the Pharisees as the antagonists to Jesus, and therefore they're always bad. But until Jesus came on the scene, the Jewish culture thought that the Pharisees were the epitome of moral rectitude and correctness and righteousness. They were always going to the temple. They were always praying. They were always visible. They were always studying and their, their scriptures, and they knew the scriptures. How could anybody be more righteous than they? That's why Jesus came along in the Sermon on the Mount and said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't see the kingdom of God. As they are good. He recognized right there that they produced a level, a superior level of righteousness. But that wasn't going to be good enough. So the sin nature produces both active disobedience to God, but it also produces that which is uh, moral and that which is relative good. 
but it has nothing in it that gains God's approval. So point six, the original sin of Adam thus corrupted the imago dei. That's the Latin phrase for for, um, the image of God. The original sin corrupts the imago dei of man, but it doesn't eradicate. See, that's what some people come along and they say, well, the image of God was eradicated by sin. It, It wasn't. Man, it's still in the image of God. Just go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, when God is defining the reason for capital punishment, is because of the fact that someone has killed someone else in God's image. Even though it's been corrupted, that's the basis for capital punishment. It's not because it's a deterrent. It's not because you want to set an example. It's not for any of those reasons. It's because if somebody has reached the point where their soul is so corrupt that they have so little respect for an image bearer, a divine image bearer, then to take the life of a divine image bearer is an act of blasphemy against God. Because to kill one who bears his image is an act against the one whose image he bears. And the reason you are to take the life of anyone who commits certain crimes is because they are viewed as an act against God because it's an act against one who bears his image. So the image isn't eradicated, it is corrupted. Point number seven, the question then is, does Adam's sin affect only Adam or does Adam's sin affect his descendants as well? Now, that's an important question because some of you may be aware that uh, today when we usually talk about issues related to sovereignty and free will, related to election, related to uh, the extent of the atonement, some of these other things, we usually talk about that in terms of a debate that came out of the Reformation known as the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Calvinists are those who are in the tradition of John Calvin coming out of Geneva, Switzerland, the Arminians being the followers uh, generally of Jacob Arminius, James Arminius, who was a Dutch theologian who taught uh, in Holland. The fact is that that where the their their followers were by 1611 or 1615, 1616 is not where either uh, either Calvin or Arminius were to begin with. But those are the terms that we use. But this debate didn't just pop up in you know the seven, early 17th century or late 16th century. It was the same basic debate that had begun back in the fifth, early fifth century, fourth century, between uh, Augustine, who was the bishop of Hippo, and a British monk by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius taught that every person was born as Adam was created. No corruption, no sin nature, perfectly free volition, each person made their own decision as to whether they were going to be fallen. And so according to Pelagius, people could live their entire life without ever sinning, and they would automatically go to heaven. That was known as Pelagianism. And that, and so that created the initial uh, debate. So this has been an ongoing debate for, for numerous years. But point number seven is, does Adam's sin affect only Adam or his descendants? If it affects his descendants, how does it affect his descendants? How is it passed on from one generation to another? And that leads to the two terms that we've already 
briefly introduced, seminalism and federalism, point number nine. Let's get our definition. Seminalism and federalism. In seminalism, the entire human race, body and soul, was genetically present in Adam. The entire human race, body and soul, material and immaterial, are present in Adam. This view is usually connected to a traditionist view of the transmission of the soul. This is seminalism. Everything is passed on through procreation through secondary causes, both the soul and the body. The second view is called federalism. And this is the view that Adam stood as the head and representative of the human race, and Adam's decisions were on behalf of all humanity. This view is most consistently linked to the creationist view of the origin and transmission of the soul. So those are the two positions. Now, point number 10, we're going to look at the biblical support for the seminalist position, and that is our passage. That is the one passage they always go to in Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. Even Levi, who receives tithes, Levi not personally, but indirectly through his descendants, the Levitical priesthood, Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes also indirectly through Abraham, and we saw that the Greek there was really in a manner of speaking, 4, verse 10, he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, we've done the exegesis of this verse, that this concept that he was in the loins of his uh, father when Melchizedek met him is a figure of speech. That's what the Greek says. But historically, this was taken to mean that Levi personally, actually, truly, genuinely, pay ties to Melchizedek because he is seminally present body and soul, in Abraham. Three generations back. So that is, and that's the only verse, the primary verse that they go to. Now the next point, point number 11, gives the biblical support for the federal position. And this is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 to 19, and 1 Corinthians 15.22. I think I said 21 earlier, but it's 15.22. But the free gift is not like the offense. That is a free gift of salvation or justification. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Now, how did that judgment on Adam that came from one offense result in condemnation of the whole human race? And you see, Paul is making this comparison between the way condemnation goes to the entire human race and the free gift of justification goes to the entire human race. And see, that's why I come back and say both. there's truth in both sides of this because Jesus Christ is our representative on the cross, but what qualifies him in one sense to be there is because he's true human and he is genetically linked to the entire human race. So there's truth on both sides, and you have to understand what elements apply to each side. 
The free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense, that's Adam's original sin, death reigned through the one, death through the entire human race, spiritual death, uh, probably in this case, because it's talking about the offense and the judgment. Now let me pause there a minute, because a lot of times, in fact, I had a question, discussion with a pastor about this this last week. Question comes up. Is physical death in the animal kingdom a result of man's sin? And why is that important? Because some people will come along and say, well, there was death before Adam. It's in the fossils. See, if you try to put any kind of life between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, then you can have, which is what the old, old earth gap view did, and other views, uh, the progressive evolution view, threshold evolution view, some of these other assimilationist views will try to get an old earth position. You have millions or billions of years before Adam, and then finally Adam pops up on the scene, and you just have spiritual death. That's all this is talking about, uh, is spiritual death. And so you can have animals Die. Now, there's a difference between animals and plants because the Hebrew word for animals' life is nefesh hayan. That's not the same word that you apply to the life of, of plants. So Adam could eat uh, corn, and he's not killing it. I've read some people who tried to argue that. Well, see, those plants died when they ate it. There was death. Uh, different words. Now, pay attention to the Hebrew text. But... Death as a principle, this is 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's about, it may be 21, we'll look at that in a minute. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 21, that death came by Adam. And death there is a, it's, it's talking about physical death, and it is an anarthrous noun indicating death as, a, as, as an entity. Not just physical death of man, but death as death, as, a, as, a, as an entity comes into creation as a result of Adam's sin. And then, of course, we see the other elements of the curse that apply to the animals as well. So when uh, Romans 5, 8, uh, 5 uh, 17 says, For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. See, he's not talking about animals per se here because why? That's not a subject. His subject is talking about how Christ's death brings salvation. So he's just talking about a man. But the death that he's probably talking about here is not physical. It is spiritual because he's talking about the penalty, the condemnation. Now, you have to be careful in some of the creationist literature, because I've read a lot from guys at ICR, guys at Answers in Genesis, and they don't get this straight on the difference between physical death and spiritual death. They want to make physical death the penalty for sin. And so you have to be careful there and don't get caught by that trap. Uh, Romans 5.18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, that is Adam's disobedience to God, Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. So our question is, how did this happen? Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, 
So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's the physical, that is the, uh, that's the verse for the federal position. Talking about Adam as our representative, just as Christ is our representative. So point number 12, as with many theological positions, these are often presented as either or when it may best be understood as a both and, that, that there, there's elements of both that are true. Some aspects of man are physically and similarly present in Adam, and there's a, a physical connection that links us to Adam, but it's also a physical connection that links us to Christ. And if you break down that physical connection, then you lose the physical connection to Christ, and it messes up salvation. But there's also a spiritual dimension, an immaterial dimension, uh, that it relates to imputation of sin and imputation of righteousness. So in other ways, point number 13, man is represented by both Adam and Christ. So both are true. Point number 14, this allows for Adam's sin to be legally and actually our sin. It means that a physical dimension related to sin is passed on genetically to to every member of the human race except for Christ because of the virgin birth. But point 15, it also allows for Christ's death to be for the entire human race because he's related genetically to all of the human race. And it also allows for him to represent us on the cross. So both sides are true. There's physical connection and a uh, federal representation. Now, what underlies these last six or seven points is a doctrine of imputation. So before we can go any further, we have to make sure we understand the whole uh, doctrine of imputation. These 15 points that I gave you are simply a summary of where we're going with all of this. We have to go through the passages related to this. So the first thing we have to do is understand imputations. And there are six imputations in the Scripture. That's twice as many as Lewis Berry Chafer saw. What's interesting is some of you heard uh, seven imputations, and you were taught six, uh, six imputations or different kinds of imputations, real imputations, and... Uh, Real, real, uh, real imputations and judicial imputations. That terminology, as far as I can see, came out of Lewis Berry Chafer. Chafer only had three imputations, though, but he clearly talked about judicial imputations and real imputations. The reason I discovered that was when I went to, uh, was up at, up at, um, I was going up to Preston City Bible Church back some nine years ago. And I received their doctrinal questionnaire. They asked on the questionnaire to explain the difference between real and judicial imputations. Now, that's not—I mean—that terminology is not 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 unfamiliar to most of you, and most of you can probably answer that question. But they had thrown away somewhere between sixty and a hundred. Uh, uh, doctrinal questionnaires returned to them from seminary graduates who couldn't even answer that question. And part of that reason is because there's no other systematic theology other than Lewis Berry Chafer 
that makes a distinction between judicial and real imputation. Very important distinction. But if but now that most seminaries don't require, or Dow Seminary specifically doesn't require students to read Chafer's Systematic Theology, nobody graduates from Dallas can answer that question unless they've been under the teaching of a few people who still understand these important distinctions. There are two different kinds of imputations, real and judicial, but before we get to that, we have to understand what an imputation is. I don't have this up on the screen. I thought I did. There we go. Impute. Impute means to attribute something to someone, to ascribe something to someone. It seems to involve the attribution or reckoning of something intangible or abstract rather than concrete and substantive. In other words, if I reached into my pocket and pulled out a $20 bill and gave you a $20 bill, that is a real transaction. I mean, that is a substantive transaction. But if I were to impute that to your account, then that would be more along the lines of your, let's say you go get a mortgage account and you want to buy a house. You don't have credit and you don't have the money in the bank to do that, so you're going to ask somebody to co-sign on for, for, the, for the loan. And so the bank's going to look at their credit and how much money's in their account. And so that their credit is imputed to you. Now, do you, have you received anything substantive? No. See, that's why impute isn't a good word for uh, the transmission or the creation and impartation of human life because imputation means to reckon something to someone. And reckon is an English word that we don't use a whole lot unless you're from the Ozarks or maybe Appalachia or East Texas and you reckon something's true. Some of you know what I mean because you've been to those parts of the country. Well, reckon means to calculate. It means to be of the opinion or it means to regard something in a specified way. See, this is an abstract concept. It's not something concrete. It's not the giving of something concrete to someone else. And at life, we're given something, a soul. So that's not an imputation. That's an impartation. Impute simply means to credit something, ascribe something, or attribute something to someone that they do not already have. Now, the word is used in a financial sense in Philemon 1, 17 and 18, where Paul is talking to Philemon about Onesimus and says that if Onesimus actually owes you anything financial, just uh, impute that to my account or put that on my account. I'll pay his debt. So it is a, used there as an accounting term, which is its, its origin. There are two different Greek words used for imputing in the New Testament. Now that's weird. Okay, I don't know how that happened. That's supposed to be the Greek there, but we're having computer issues today. It's from the Greek word elogeo, meaning to charge with a financial obligation or charge something to the account of someone. It's used in Romans 5.13, a passage 
uh, context we read earlier, we read from uh, a little later on in that section. And the other word is legizomai. And legizomai is a word used 41 times in the New Testament, and it has to do with thinking. It's from the root noun lagos, and it has to do with reasoning or logic. Uh, it has to do with counting. It was an accounting term as well, to count something up uh, mentally, to occupy yourself with reckonings or calculations, to determine by a mathematical process, to reckon, to calculate, to give careful thought to a matter, to think, to consider, to ponder. It has the idea of thinking about somebody in a certain way. So when God imputes righteousness to you, he thinks of you now as righteous. That's what that means. You have been credited with that in an accounting term so that you now have a positive balance on the ledger instead of a negative balance. But, see, the problem is your account is still empty. God's looking at Christ's bank account, and that's enough to give you that positive balance. That's where we get this idea of imputation. So we have uh, two judicial imputations. Now, a judicial imputation takes place when there is no affinity or attraction between what is imputed and the person to whom it is imputed. So that what is being imputed is not antecedently possessed by the person who's receiving the imputation. For example, when our personal sins are imputed to Christ on the cross, that is a judicial imputation because Christ knew no sin. He had never sinned. He never he had not committed any personal sins. He had not received a sin nature for Adam or and he wasn't uh, didn't receive the imputation of any sin until that time period on the cross when he was judicially judged for our sins. And we see this in second Corinthians five twenty one for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. But Jesus doesn't become sin for us in the same way that you and I become sinful because it's not a decision on his part. He just receives the punishment. He is given the judicial punishment for the sin that we have committed. That is the first type of judicial imputation. The second type of judicial imputation is the imputation of Adam's original sin, or excuse me, the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness to us. Here we go. We have the righteousness and justice of God in heaven looking at us in our negative righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 said, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Now, at the cross, Christ is perfectly righteous, but our unrighteousness, our sin, is imputed to him. When we trust Christ, his perfect righteousness is then imputed to us. Now, we still have our lousy righteousness. You're still immoral. You still commit sin. You're still a sinner. You're not any better five minutes after you were saved than you were five minutes before you were saved. But legally, forensically, you are now righteous because you have been covered with the righteousness of Christ. That's that picture in Zechariah 3 when Satan comes and judges Joshua the high priest 
and uh, because he's unworthy to be the high priest. And so uh, God has him strip off his clothes and he clothes him with a white robe. That's that picture of putting on perfect righteousness. So we're saved not because of anything we've ever done, but because we possess that perfect righteousness of Christ. That is what makes a difference between a Catholic and a Protestant. Is because Catholics think that justification's a process like sanctification. And the only way you can know if you're justified is if you are doing enough good deeds to receive enough merit from the treasury of Christ so that when you die, you don't end up in purgatory, but you can end up in heaven. The question is, how much is enough? Well, we don't know. So you can never know if you're saved. Because it's a process. Sounds like lordship salvation, doesn't it? Gee. So we're declared righteous. That's called forensic justification. That is what Luther stood his ground on at the Council of Worms when he said, here I stand, I can do no other. That was it. That was the benchmark of the Protestant Reformation. Okay. So we have two... Judicial imputations. Personal sins to Christ on the cross, perfect righteousness of Christ to the believer at the point of salvation. But there are four real imputations, and this has to do with uh, when, when that which is imputed is in agreement, has affinity with, or is in harmony with the target of the imputation. And we'll just, we're about out of time, I'll just cover them very briefly. First is Adam's original sin to the sin nature. Adam's original sin is imputed to the physically transmitted corrupt nature. And that render at the point of birth, and that renders us guilty of Adam's original sin. See, the sin nature is transmitted physically. That's seminalism. Adam's original sin is imputed to us. That's federalism. Second, eternal life is imputed to the human spirit, to the soul, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. At that instant, we receive God's life and we have eternal life. Third, our blessings in time are imputed to us because of our perfect righteousness. This is that final point of of the last slide, is that because we possess perfect righteousness, God is free to bless us. So blessings in time are... uh, Imputed to perfect righteousness and fourth, blessings in eternity are ours also because of that possession of perfect righteousness. Not ever because of what we do. It's not because you pray, read your Bible, memorize scripture, witness to 20 people every week. That's not why God blesses you. You do those things as a result of spiritual growth. And as a result of spiritual growth, God will distribute blessings he's already decided to give you. But if You don't grow, he's not going to distribute the blessings because you don't have the capacity to handle the blessing. So don't get in the trap of thinking, well, God blessed me this week because I went to church or I studied my Bible. That's that's not the cause effect. That's works. Okay? That takes us through our basic introduction. Now, when I come back from Israel, we will go a few steps further in this and take some time in Romans chapter 5 to sort of parse that out and see how federalism and seminalism work together. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to go through these 
uh, concepts. It's a little difficult and stretching at times, but, Father, it helps us to understand the dynamics of our so great salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to go back, study these things, think about them, reflect upon all that you've done for us, and that that may further motivate us in our spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.